You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. The following is a recording of the Ayn Rand Institute's Philosophy for Living on Earth webinar series. Sign up to attend the next webinar live at bit.ly forward slash ARI webinars. How can one be fully independent in today's society? By Harry Binswanger. All right, welcome. Welcome to Philosophy for Living on Earth, coming to you live from the Ayn Rand Institute. All right, welcome. Uh, hang on a welcome second. Welcome to Philosophy. Sorry about that. Um, so this is our weekly webinar series exploring uh, life's big questions and the answers to those questions coming from the ideas of Ayn Rand. So I'm Keith Lockich, and I'm not your host this week because uh, I'll be moderating today's webinar. Um, because we're joined by a special guest presenter, uh, which is Harry Binswanger, who will be addressing the big question, um, how can one be fully independent in today's society? So take it away, Harry. So I'm going to um, begin. And the discussion of independence, of course, has to be made in the context of the fountainhead. The theme of the fountainhead is that the ideal man is the man of total independence. Howard Rourke is the ideal man and the attribute of Howard Rourke that stress is his total independence, his metaphysical independence, meaning his independence as a matter of the essence of who he, he is and how he functions. Why is the ideal man the man of independence? And this will enable us to answer how do you maintain your independence through a certain difficult or, or um, many-step process, so bear with me, that will be the climax of this development. So why is independence required? Why is it a virtue? Why is it the ideal? because morality is a code of values to guide your choices and actions in order that you're able to survive and be happy. Survival is the issue Ayn Rand shows at the base of morality. It's what makes values possible and necessary. The fact that you face the alternative of life or death. Happiness is a psychological consequence of achieving in every respect the requirements of your survival. So if your survival is your ultimate value, value your life is your ultimate value, you have to honor, cherish, respect, protect, nourish, your main organ of survival. And your main organ of survival is not your heart, as important as that is, but the thing that is at the top of the hierarchy of control in your life. The thing that decides whether you let your heart go on beating or stab yourself and kill yourself. And that's your mind. Your mind is the ultimate regulator of everything about you. 
your mind is the fundamental that controls your uh, conclusions and therefore your values and therefore your actions. So if you're going to live your life, if you're going to succeed at the task of achieving your survival, it's your mind that has to be used properly. And that's what the uh, virtue of independence is. The virtue of independence is really simply saying, use your mind to grasp reality. Don't use a substitute, i.e. somebody else's mind. You can't survive through another's mind. As obvious as that seems, once stated, 99% of mankind seem to live the other way. They are oriented not towards solving problems in reality, thinking about reality, using their senses and logic to conclude things about reality, but with ingratiating themselves with other men or in the case of some of our prominent politicians, of bullying or ruling other men. In The Fountainhead, Rourke explains that independence, the man of self-sufficient ego, as he puts it, does not live through others in any way. He does not place his primary concern within them. They are not the source of his beliefs, of his values, of his energy. So he is a first cause unto himself, the ideal man, the man who's equipped to survive. Ayn Rand often stated, just as we cannot digest a meal in a collective stomach, so we cannot think through a collective brain. There is no collective brain. So by a self-sufficient ego, she meant the ego that thinks on its own, because she defined the ego as a mind and its basic values. Your basic values come from the judgment of your mind, so it all comes back to your mind. You think, you judge, you rank, you decide, you act. And if you don't think you will not be judging, you'll be doing what other people do or whatever whim strikes you. You will not rank things yourself. You will take over the ranking that exists in the society in which you live because that's it. It's not that everyone does that. Some people are nutty in their own ways, but the extremely vast majority adopt the beliefs and values and conclusions and ways of living of the people around them. And they do that for a very interesting reason. If you don't think, if you don't use your method of survival, if your CPU is not active, now my cat has just jumped on, but the cat is not a being of volitional consciousness. If you do not use your means of survival, if you do not uh, use your main control mechanism, your brain, to guide your life in action, you still have to make decisions. You still have to do things. You either have to stand up or sit down or lie down. 
you either have to turn left, turn right, or stand still. You can't do A and not do A at the same time and in the same respect. And your life hangs into balance and you sense that. So if you're not thinking and deciding for yourself, what is the solution that is available? It's to follow what other people have done. And there's a reason why it's expected uh, especially attractive to do that. And that is that you can't introspect this self-doubt, anxiety, and internal turmoil of other people. Other people look confident. Why? Because they want to look confident. No one wants to look uncertain, afraid, weak. Everyone puts on a front of well, let me not say everyone. Lots and lots of people put on a front of being in control. There's even something recognized in psychology as the imposter syndrome, which is a person succeeds through his act and he gets into a position of authority or of um, high rank in a business or something and he feels he's going to be found out. He's going to be found out that he doesn't know. And he doesn't know, and he is an imposter. Now, even people who have done the work to find out sometimes feel this because they've done the work locally in the business sense, but they haven't done the bigger work, the philosophical work to decide who they should be, what, what kind of universe they're living in. They've taken over those basic philosophical uh, judgments from the society. So, if other people, even if inside they're like this, I don't know, I don't know, they're putting on this act, right? And to you who can't see the inner self-doubt and fear and anxiety, which after all, the person is hiding even from himself, so he's putting on the act primarily for himself. If you can't see that, it looks like you're the only one who's uncertain and afraid, and they know they're confident. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not have any gods before me. And you don't hear the inner voice saying, what am I saying? What is, this is all phony. Now that, it's not that everybody hears that all the time, but the people who fake hear it sometimes, and that is their actual state. So the attractiveness of conformity, of dependence, is both you need an answer, you need to know what to do, and they look free of the doubts, they look free of the doubts that are torturing you. And I don't mean the people on this uh, webinar in the, in the group here, but the average person. So for that reason, uh, it's so popular to be popular. It's so popular to be what Ayn Rand called a second-hander and to substitute other people's opinions and uh, conclusions for your own. But it doesn't work. Look at Peter Keating. Look at um, Bernie Madoff. Look at Donald Trump. You may think he's succeeding, but I can assure you he doesn't think that. 
and he's not succeeding. Um, I mean, we don't know if he'll be impeached or not, but uh, he's certainly not um, achieving goals that he himself has. But that's let's not get off into Trump. Intellectual independence is the root of independence. Independence comes down to using your mind. And that's why the answer to the question, how do you maintain your independence in a society where the entire weight of the establishment is pushing you to be dependent, the answer to that question is simply by thinking. Simply by not obeying internally. And I want to distinguish in this regard obeying versus two other things that might look like it. One is agreeing. So if somebody says to me in a very demanding way, uh, use your mind, live for your own sake, or whatever I agree with, or two and two is four. I'm going to say, yeah, that's right. But not because he ordered me to do it, but because I've reached that conclusion, those conclusions by my own thinking. So the mere fact that you agree or disagree has no necessary relation to whether you arrive at your position through thought, which means independence, or a reaction to other people, whether positive or negative. There's a person who, if you say it's raining, will say it's not raining. The rebel or a contrarian who defines himself as not what everybody else is, he's still dependent, right? The independent man takes what other people say as input for his own thinking. And he evaluates what they say. So one thing is that agreement is not the same as submission. The next point is that even if you agree to um, as, a, as a hypothesis, that's not the same thing as submission. So for instance, if a child is growing up and its parents are Catholic, and its parents are, are basically rational, except for the Catholicism, and obviously to a very young child, know a great deal that he doesn't know. And so he decides, well, Catholicism is probably right, so I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. Maybe when I get older, I'll change my mind about that. So it's one thing to submit, just to turn off your mind, oh, we're Catholics, I'm Catholic. And the other to say, well, for the, for the moment, I'm going to act as, as if this is true. I'm taking this on approval. And a rational thinking child will go along with many things uh, and even say he believes them, which inwardly he thinks, this is probably right, but when I get older, I'm going to decide about it for myself. So submission is not uh, the same as agreement or disagreement, and submission is not the same as uh, even accepting ideas as hypotheses, taking them on approval, as I uh, put it. Submission means losing the distinction between it is and they say. 
It means taking other people as if they were reality. The second hander substitutes what others say for his own perception of reality. That's what makes a person a second hander. That's what it means to be the second hand. Now let's take some examples of this. Or actually I should, I should draw the conclusion, the shocking conclusion from this. It doesn't take any particular strength to be independent in today's society. The idea that it does is already on the dependent premise. What difference does it make to you whether everybody is saying two and two is five? You know it's four. It makes your life more difficult, but would you be tempted to go along? Well, I guess two and two is five. Everybody says it's five. On an issue that simple, you, some people would go along, but I'm sure that well over half the people would go with their own perception of reality. Well, it's the same thing if it's a discussion of socialism versus capitalism or are gender roles fixed or is there a God or any question. It's the same, uh, there's no pressure. There's only the question, will I think about this or not? Will I exercise my organ of survival, my fundamental organ of survival, or will I just drift or blank out the truth? That is not hard, and that no one can affect. Now, here's, a, here's the example I wanted to give. So a five-year-old child, <clears throat> because people always think that the young child is not capable of being independent. He is. Take a five-year-old child, and he says at the dinner table, Daddy, if God created the universe, I guess he would say everything. He would probably have the word universe. If God created everything, who created God? And now let's suppose that the father, who has uh, also got a drinking problem, uh, is very abusive, hauls off and hits the kid and says, if you ask questions like that, you'll go to hell. And whatever you want to put into the equation where the father is trying to, quote, inculcate in the worst possible way uh, certain ideas in the kid. What is hard and what is not hard? Well, it'd be hard, almost impossible, I guess impossible not to cry, not to feel terrible, not to fear the father. But is it hard after dinner when he's alone in his room to ask himself, did daddy answer my question? Why did he do that? I would never do that if I had a son. I would never hit him. Certainly not for asking a question. What's wrong with it? And did he answer my question? No. So it doesn't tell me the answer to the question, who created God if God created the universe? That's not hard. That doesn't take some special strength that only the great hero possesses. 
It's a matter of turning on your mind and asking yourself questions. Thinking is asking questions. If you ask questions, if you turn on your mind, it immediately gives you a certain protection from other people. Uh, for instance, uh, I'll just close with this um, difference. The boss comes in and says, Jenkins, that's your name for this example. Jenkins, you did a lousy job on that project. Now, one reaction is, I did a lousy job. Oh my God, I feel like humiliated. He's angry with that. It's terrible. The other reaction is, the boss thinks I did a lousy job on, the on this uh, project. How did he reach that conclusion? Why? What was lousy about it? Did I have any alternative? What went on? What went wrong? What is he talking about? Merely asking these questions creates a distance between you and the person who is yelling at you. All my examples are negative. There could be the positive seduction example too where someone is flattering you and you don't have to go along, you can also ask, how did she reach that conclusion that I'm so wonderful? What is she looking at that she thinks I'm so wonderful? What is the boss saying? How did he reach his conclusion? Because he's just another guy like me. His consciousness doesn't work by revelation from God. So the fact that he thinks X means either it's arbitrary or there's some reason why he thinks X. And if he tells me that, I will decide if that reason does imply X or doesn't. So it takes no special strength to keep your mind going. Now, I grant you just, just for the sake of completeness, the little kid who slapped or you even when the boss comes down on you maybe can't think rationally and freely at the time, at the moment. But you've got hours, days, a lifetime thereafter to reflect on it and to think about it when you're calm, when your mind is free to go over the pluses and the minuses. So it's there is no special strength required. And the fact that I phrase the question kind of deliberately as how can it, I'm, I'm getting tangled up in the sentence. I phrased the question deliberately paradoxically. It was, how can you be independent when other people don't want you to be? You see that that's a contradiction. To be independent is to go your own way regardless of what other people want. So the fact that, that um, other people do or don't value your, your independence and your approach is, you know, it can be painful or pleasant or whatever, but it doesn't affect whether you think for yourself or not. It doesn't affect it at all. So let's, um, Keith, if you can get back on, let's take some questions uh, yeah. from the audience. Yeah, that's okay. Thanks, Harry. Before we have, we have a, we have a bunch of questions lined up in the Q and A panel, but before we do that, let me just make a couple of announcements. So I'm just going to share my screen again here. Um, Okay, so um, 
we the this webinar is a, is aimed at answering life's big questions and if you have a big question that you'd like us to take up please send them in we love getting email from you we love getting questions and we love getting suggestions for future topics so if you have a big question for a future webinar send it to webinars at einrand.org um, join us again next week our presenter is going to be ari's uh, aaron smith and the big question he'll be discussing is, do I need a philosophy? I think we can maybe have a hint of what the answer is going to be, but uh, I think it'll be an interesting session. So please join us again next week for that. And we, um, well, let's see, sorry. And we like to, we're, part of what we're trying to do with these webinars is reach um, new audiences. So I'm just going to put up a little poll here. This is a poll that we do every week. Now that we've shifted to a new day and time, uh, we want to see um, what sort of audience makeup we have. So what we'd like you to do is to just answer this question of what your familiarity is with Ayn Rand. You know, what's your familiarity with her writings, with her ideas? I'm just going to leave this poll up during the Q&A and you can answer it at your leisure. Um, and and I think that's all my announcements. So let us turn to the Q&A. I'm going to stop sharing my screen. Okay. All right, Harry. So uh, we have the first question comes from Sally. And I think it's actually connected with the, with the title of the presentation. You, the, the way we, we formulated the title was, how can one be fully independent in today's society? And so that right. kind of sort of raises the question of, in in a society you know where where we trade with other people and we learn with other people is that does that represent a form of dependence or or not how does independence fit in with that the independent man earns the value equivalent of what he gets in exchange so he gets a cake and he gives to the baker a, an amount of money that the baker thinks is worth more to him, the baker, than the cake is. So he's not dependent by virtue of trade, nor are you dependent by virtue of going to school and learning from other people. Rational learning is an independent act. What's not independent is going to school and being accepting the brainwashing, the indoctrination. There is no literal brain, there's no such thing as brainwashing because independence is a virtue. But it's possible to conform and not question and go along with the tide and so many people do. And that's the reason why a recent poll shows that 70% of young people coming out of college think socialism in some form is a good thing. Oh, we lost your audio. Sorry, I muted myself so I wouldn't cause an echo and then I started okay. talking without <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, th there's a related question that, that I think um, you could build on what you just said because th this is somebody asking specifically about objectivism and if objectivism is, is, is Ayn Rand's philosophy, is there some issue with people calling themselves, if I call myself an objectivist, does that represent some form of uh, some lack of independence because I'm taking the ideas from her? 
or do or does or do I have to agree with every single thing that she thought in order to call myself an objectivist? How does independence two, relate? Yeah. yeah, there are two different questions there. One I sort of covered that is rational agreement the same thing as conformity, and no, it is not. You can agree because you see the reasons, or you can agree even though you don't see any reasons. So you would call yourself a Newtonian, a Darwinian, right? A Pythagorean in terms of the Pythagorean theorem, because you can see the reasons for it. You, hold, you reach the conclusions that Newton and uh, Darwin and Pythagoras laid out for you. But uh, the opposite is, and there, are, there is this phenomenon, uh, people who go along with Ayn Rand because A, there's a group of people to join, and B, she's so powerful a speaker. Uh, if they've watched the YouTube videos of her and they were very impressed with her, or, or maybe the, because they love Atlas Shrugged for the wrong reasons. Because if they loved it for the right reasons, and, and the Fountainhead, if they loved them for the right reasons, then they would presumably put into practice the virtues that make the heroes heroic, put into practice in their own lives, and they wouldn't have any, uh, there wouldn't be any issue of being a follower. It would be a, uh, the same as your relationship to Isaac Newton. So that's part one is that uh, the, the question uh, kind of presupposes a, some second-handedness, if you'll forgive me. It's a question that should not occur to you. That uh, why, uh, Isn't there an, an issue of going along with Ayn Rand, of, of using her ideas? If you're thinking about what it means to be independent, it shouldn't even occur to you. It's, it, it, it might occur to you if your only definition of independence is disagreeing or agreeing, which is a second-handed notion of independence. The second thing was, do you have to agree with everything that Ayn Rand said? Yes, you do. Next question. Now, first of all, you don't have to agree with everything she said in order to be an objectivist, because there's a tremendous distinction between philosophy and the application of philosophy. So a philosophy can say, uh, if, a is, if all A's are B and all B's are C, then all A's are C. And you have to agree with that if you advocate logic. And you're an Aristotelian, because he discovered that, that way of you know, formalizing logic. But you may think, well, no, not all B's are C's. Some bees are C's, but there are, there are occasional exceptions. And so I don't ag agree with the conclusion because I don't agree with one of the premises. Or to take a, a, another example, um, you believe that capitalism is a system of individual rights and therefore is the only moral social system and any law that violates individual rights is wrong. But maybe you don't think laws that uh, prohibit um, the sale of uh, drugs with, without a prescription violate individual rights. Objectivism in application holds that it does. Or I remember the last thing for me to go was public education. 
I, I, uh, that is, I thought, yeah, we've got to have laissez-faire capitalism, but we need to have free education for everybody because you can't have capitalism without an educated populace. And that's a wrong application. And the objectivist political philosophy does imply private education only. And we see that government schools do not educate people. They miseducate, de-educate people. But I could, I could misapply the principle and still say I agree with the principle. And philosophy deals in principles. So you, to be an objectivist is to agree with the principles. Now, if you, if you don't get the kind of like obvious implications, like I believe in individual rights, so I'm an objectivist, but murder is okay. Uh, you, you don't know what you're talking about. That's a different case. But in terms of application to complex things, uh, that's not part of objectivism. Ayn Rand thought Beethoven was deterministic music. Beethoven's music was fatalistic, deterministic. That's not part of objectivism, as she herself said. Um, so uh, psychology is not part of objectivism. So you don't have to agree with her on psychology. Um, economics is not part of objectivism. So although she had very interesting ideas that are kind of like not recognized uh, in economics, you don't have to agree with that to be an objective. But you'd be advised to pay strict attention to the reasons she gives for everything because she's got a, an unbroken track record of applying her philosophy correctly. So if the question is, do I think Ayn Rand misapplied this or I'm um, the one misapplying it, the burden of proof is on me to myself that she got it wrong and I got it right. Um, so um, there are a couple of cases that outside of philosophy that I do disagree with her about, but so what? That's not, you know, to be overly concerned about that, if it's about applications, it is a strange perspective. You I don't need to agree on everything. Uh, yeah. application-wise, you need to agree on basic principles. Yeah, I think one one needs to be wary of, of having that as a question because it suggests an orientation towards an authority figure. And there's yeah. a, so I, I, on the first part of the question, I just wanted to mention that Ayn Rand has a talk that she gave that's an article called Who is the Final Authority in Ethics? Where she takes up that question of, of, uh, of whether agreeing with somebody's ideas, you know, represents a form of or a lack of, of independence. Now, one of the things that came up in your discussion there was the issue was a comparison to science, and we actually got a question from someone in the Q and A. Max was asking, if you think about science, well, the question he put it is, how does one not become second-handed when one considers science? And if I could interpret the question, I guess I think the question is, um, as an individual, you can't have expertise in every field of science and so there's a certain way in which you do have to rely on other people's discoveries and other people's knowledge so is how is that not a form of second-handedness it's not a form of second-handedness if you don't claim to know it that's the case i talked about 
entertaining ideas as likely hypotheses or taking them on approval. There is the proper use of experts. We live in a division of labor. And if somebody is uh, an expert in a rational field, not in astrology, but in physics, and he's got credentials, he graduated from a prestigious university, and, and not just a BA or BS, but a PhD, and he's been teaching, and maybe he's uh, invented something. I mean, there are obvious grounds to believe that a person knows what he's talking about. And if his statements make sense, because they're all, there are so many people in physics today who would pass the first two tests and tell you physics has discovered that reality is not either or or if physics has discovered that the Zen Buddhist has it right, uh, there's this statement of, um, not on Zen Buddhism, but equivalent of the chairman of the uh, physics department of Columbia University, the chairman of the department that I interviewed. And he said, I think most physicists today would agree that a particle doesn't have a position and a momentum until you measure them. So what are you measuring if it's, there's nothing there? He didn't, uh, I didn't ask him that because it would have been rude, but that's a crazy view. He's got all the credentials, except really that's a philosophical view and he's not qualified in philosophy. So he's qualified to know the equations and the experiments and the thinking that went into them. But if it's a field that you're in, that you're learning, of course, you have to be first-handed. You have to follow the proofs of everything. You have to see the reasons why F equals MA. Uh, and if it's not known, like gravity is not known, what Newton didn't know what caused gravity, and we still don't. Einstein's answer does not make sense, by the way, in my humble or not so humble opinion. But so there are things that you can say, well, we know that gravity exists in the, in the areas that we've investigated, but we don't know what causes it. You can't pretend to knowledge that you don't have. Well, we could talk about that further, but I think it would get us a bit far afield for today's topic. So um, let's turn to this question, which is there is the phenomenon of people in relationships uh, becoming sort of emotionally dependent on each other. And, and so the question is, why does that happen? And, you know, maybe maybe um, part of the question that's not explicitly asked is, if you're in a relationship, what um, what is a healthy form of independent connection as opposed to that sort of dependence? Okay, that's a big topic, and I'm not fully qualified to speak on it. Uh, I'm, I'm qualified to speak on a couple of things at the border of it, but um, it's more for psychology or clinical psychology. Um, I think my hypothesis is that people enter into a relationship with a certain degree of dependence. If they, they don't become dependent on each other, they were already dependent and it gets focused on the other person. So this is what's called a codependent relationship, and it's not a healthy one. But then most relationships are mixed. There's independent valuing and some dependence as well, and that's what makes them hard. 
as to what um, what a healthy relationship is, um, I would suggest reading Ayn Rand's novels from that standpoint, although she doesn't go into the details of married life, uh, but you get certain principles. And um, I would investigate some of the self-help literature, some of it's good. The, the Passionate Marriage is a good book on that topic, in my non-professional opinion. Okay, uh, we've got some questions about the, the idea, Ayn Rand's idea that force stops thought. And, and is there a relation between the issue of independence versus being subjected to force and, and how that affects your independence, I, I guess, is the, is the question. Well, that cuts two ways. Um, the first thing is that force stops thought in exactly the same way that dependence stops thought. You cannot uh, be thoughtfully dependent. You know, if you're being dependent, you're saying, yeah, okay, I guess, yeah, mm -hmm, uh, well, if you say so. You're not thinking through the evidence. So accepting things dependently means you don't think about them. You don't know why they're true if they're true. You don't know why they're not true if they're not true. So you're not thinking. Thinking and independence are synonyms. Thinking and dependence are opposites, antonyms. Now, the, um, the, the issue of force is that force says if you try to be independent, you'll get hurt. Ultimately, I may kill you, right? But if you try to think for yourself and I find out about it, or you act on your thinking, which I certainly will see, to the extent that I have you in my thrall, I will stop that. So there's certain things that are all, all out of bounds, like uh, you're in a dictator. Uh, take China today. You can do a lot of things in China, but you can't publicly criticize the rulers. You can't say Xi is corrupt and a dictator and should go. You'll go if you do that. So you cannot think about political philosophy except in the privacy of your own mind. And it's hard to even do that because something that's never given outward expression frustrates the very nature of thought. The whole purpose of thought is to connect you to the world. The whole purpose of thought is to guide your action. It's not to commune with the form of the good. It's to live your life a certain way. So there's a limit to what you can do in terms of thinking rational in your own mind, but foreseeing never being able to act on that. You have to picture, well, I'll get out of here if you're going to go on thinking. Otherwise, there's just no point in thinking she's no good, he's a dictator. It's just, it severs thought from action and therefore from reality. So the way I like to put it, just to summarize it, it force I think you just froze. Are other people seeing that?
Okay, it looks like uh, Harry's video froze momentarily as he was about to summarize his uh, point. Let's just give it a second here and see if he comes unfrozen. Maybe I can stop his video. And restart it. Oh, oh we just lost him altogether. Um, well, let me continue. Uh, I'm going to continue taking up some of these questions because we have some, uh, we still have some questions in the Q&A and hopefully Harry will be able to log back in. Um, so we have a question from Steve asking, can we say anything about the likelihood or probability that two independent thinkers will reach extremely broad agreement on everything? So I think uh, in a certain sense, I would say, um, I, I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know if you could put a probability estimate or anything like that on it. But the one thing, um, the one element that I would want to introduce into the question is the fact that if people are thinking independently, um, agreement comes from... Um, ah. Oh, hi, Harry. Was I off or were you off? I think you got kicked out maybe because of something related to your uh, your Wi-Fi. You were frozen. No, you froze and then... What's up? I'm wired. I'm wired in. Oh. And anyway, I'm back. Anyway, you're back. So I, in, in the interim, I was taking up, I, I was, I was going to take up some questions myself, but you can jump in on this one. Um, the question can is, I just uh, give the, the sound bite? Yeah, go force, ahead. Force stops the mind to the extent that it succeeds, to the extent that it's, you can elude it or escape it or envision escaping it. It doesn't have to stop the mind, but it aims at stopping the mind. And when it works, that's what it does. Okay. Okay, so uh, the next question was, is, can we say anything about the likelihood or probability that independent thinkers will reach extremely broad agreement on things? And what I was about to talk about was the fact that if they're looking, that, that reality is the final arbiter. So um, people have free will, so we can't say for sure whether they will independently reach the same conclusion, but over time, um, if people are thinking honestly and thinking rationally, uh, reality will set the terms for, for the conclusions that they come to. So that, that was my approach, but you might have a different angle on that question. Uh, I think it's an issue of the complexity. Um, if it's a question of is AA or non-A, then all independent thinkers are going to agree. If it's a question of are psychological time measurements omitted from all axiomatic concepts or only the primary ones? They could well, just That's an obvious well. one. I mean, everyone yeah. has to agree on that. <laughs> right. Or what I said before, Beck, Einstein is not, you know, that's out of philosophy, but Einstein is not shown what gravity is. Uh, over time, there's going to be agreement because there's reasons for one or the other position and after enough back and forth over decades the truth comes out okay um 
So here's a here's a twist on a question that I think we've we've covered it in a from a couple of different angles, but um, somebody is asking it from this perspective, and it is, can you clarify how one can be fully independent at work? And he's thinking of if you've got a kind of modern bureaucratic environment, um, can you be truly independent in in such a system? You can have the virtue of independence fully. The virtue of independence is not a matter of what you um, go along with when you have to make a compromise to keep a job that you like and that's otherwise rational. But if it becomes pronounced, if uh, there's a bad manager and a bad culture at a company and they're asking you to take things on faith, you should leave other things equal. You should find a better job. But the mere fact that the, the boss thinks that two months from now is a, is a realistic deadline and you think, no, it's going to take at least five months and you can't persuade him, that's not, you don't give up your independence by a disagreement where you don't give up your mind, but you go along with the boss because you contract it to. That's, that's not uh, second-handed at all. So it's a question of, is it a compromise on basic principles or not? You can't compromise on basic principles, but you can you know, compromise on practical concretes where the basic principles agree to. Here, the basic principle is, we want to have a realistic time schedule to deliver a product that's good for making a profit. So people in the chat were pointing out that your 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 webcam froze just at the moment you were talking about Chinese censorship. So hopefully there's no connection. Oh, with that. <laughs> oh. Uh, well. um, let's see. So uh, well, I, I wasn't um, expecting to comment. Did my on point that. on Chinese censorship um, come through? That um, you you can't think if you think it's going to be permanent that you. Uh, you can't think about an area if you think it's permanent, you'll never be able to act on that thinking. And then that's going to spread yeah. and it's going to erode your mind. Here's a case study. Ayn Rand had a sister that she loved very much in Russia. And the sister was five years younger than Ayn Rand and looked up to her as a child. And Ayn Rand thought they had the same sense of life. So when uh, Ayn Rand left for the U.S., she was 20, just about to turn 21. So the sister must have been 15 or 16. And for years, there was very little contact. In the 70s, they got back in contact. And the sister had married a Communist Party member, hated the United States, came here and hated the freedom. So... It's an example of when you live your whole life under dictatorship, it becomes virtually impossible to think. So that actually is a good segue to the next question from Emily, which is um, if somebody um, is, has spent, is used to being dependent and used to being secondhanded and, they, and they're trying to break out of that, you know, how do you, um, well, the question is, as worded is, how does honesty play a role in a person's quest for independence? Um, and, but more broadly, what- I think what that's a great question. 
That's a great question because it is honesty that's required and it's almost all that's required. So um, the person observes about himself, I'm afraid to speak up here, I'm afraid to disagree, I'm being bulldozed, I'm going along, I'm, I'm uh, acting like Peter Keating in the Fountainhead. Uh, I don't like this, but I feel helpless to resist it at this point. That's independence. That's an act of honesty and an act of independence. The dependent person doesn't, the actual second-hander, while he's a second-hander, is not thinking, uh, oh God, here I go again, I'm surrendering to the mob. He joins the happy herd and he expects to be happy, like uh, Sally Fields. You love me, you really love me, if you remember that Academy Award speech. Now, my wife has pointed out that maybe Sally Fields didn't meet in, mean it in as Peter Keating a way as it sounds, but it sounds that way, and it's a good symbol. So it's honesty where you don't have to, you're not called upon to do some horrible, frightening, life-destroying potentially task. You're, you're, first you observe. You observe, what am I doing here? I'm just, I'm just, I don't know the reasons for this. I don't, I'm here. My priest is telling me this. And does he have any basis for that? Well, if I ask him, he'll get angry. Well, what do I think of that? So it's the in, it's keeping the internal wheels going. That's the first step. Now that will lead you to have an incentive to take the next step which, you know, in my example, be asking the priest, well, what is your reason for saying that, Father? And then evaluating that and evaluating your reaction to that. So it's, it's awareness. Your responsibility is to be aware. Action will follow when the awareness has been integrated well enough. I don't mean that you don't ever have to put forward any effort to overcome a, a, a contrary inclination. But it isn't like you, you've been afraid of spiders all your life and the solution is to jump into a nest of tarantulas. That isn't how it's done. So honesty with yourself is the first step. Self-observation is the first step. Okay, we're getting close to the end of our time. I'm gonna take a couple that I think are, might, might be fairly short. So uh, Sally is asking, um, is thinking independently, does that essentially mean being a philosopher? Do we all s strive to become philosophers in our lives? Yes and no. That, that's, that, I'll try to answer short, Keith, but everyone has to be his own philosopher to the extent that Reardon was his own philosopher. Not everyone has to be, very, very few people, uh, I shouldn't say have to be, get to be, a professional philosopher who devotes a lot of time to it. But you, you have a philosophy, whether you know it or not. So you have to inspect your philosophical premises if you want to know what's running you. But in the other sense, no, you don't have to be a philosopher. You just have to know that your basic ideas can be proven and how to do that. 
That's not so easy, but it would be if we were brought up with the right answers and the right evidence for those answers. Unfortunately, we're not. Yeah. Um, okay, another one. Um, so this question is about why programs like Social Security that make people dependent on the government, why are programs like that so popular? And the, and the questioner is, uh, this is from Christopher, why do people want to be dependent in that way? Because they haven't made the choice to think. Uh, on, uh, largely, I mean, no one is a vegetable, but they have not done very much thinking on their own in their life. And so they feel about that the way you would if you hadn't skied much in your life and you're suddenly on the slopes. They're, they don't have any earned confidence in their ability to think and therefore their ability to take care of themselves. So it's, it's from a lack of uh, a virtue leads to a fear of having to be virtuous. And, and of course, we're talking about existential dependence uh, on the money. People would not favor Social Security if they realize that it has cut our standard of living to maybe a half of what it would be uh, if there had not be so, been Social Security, because all those trillions over all those years would have been invested in expanding production and inventing new technology. Instead, it went to support uh, pensions for consumption. Some people would still support it, but it would cut a lot of the support away. Yeah. Um, so somebody on the Facebook chat pointed out that today happens to be Sally Field's birthday, so we can uh, <laughs> send our best wishes. I once, I once ate in the same restaurant with Sally Fields. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's see. So maybe this could be the last one. And the, so this is a question from Steve asking, is, does it follow from independence, the idea of independence, that it's better to reach an incorrect conclusion honestly through one's best thinking than to reach a conclusion that may be correct, but by following others? Yes, uh, 100%. And Galt says that in his speech. You're, um, you're better off, uh, I wish I could quote the eloquence of it, um, doing the independent thinking and getting the wrong answer than getting the quote right answer, which isn't right for you. It's not right for you if you just mouth the words, like I want you all to say now, e to the minus i pi is minus one, or is it to the plus i pi, Keith? Uh, it's been too long. E, I think it's e to the i pi is minus one. And you could all say that and you could all swear by it and you could put it on your bedpost at night presumably you don't know what it means and what the reasons are. And the reasons govern what the thing means. So it's, it's not that you can separate believing in something and knowing what it means. To the extent that there's no way to get to it on your own, you don't even know what it means. I think if you put it as e to the i pi plus one equals zero, then you have... Yes. The five most important numbers all in one equation. There. But anyway, yeah, that's the uh, that's the trick is to turn it around to e to the i pi plus one equals zero. Right. Yeah. All right. With that, I think we are out of time. So, Harry, thank you for uh, 
for joining us today and, and giving us your guest presentation. It's very interesting. And let me just remind people that if you have questions, big questions for us to take up, send them to webinars at einrand.org. And next week, same time, same channel, uh, we'll have Aaron Smith on uh, Do I Need a Philosophy? And I think that brings us to the end. So thanks, Harry, and thank you all for joining us. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.